Well, good morning. We continue with our series on the Mass. This is the 11th and final teaching in this series. And I have to admit, I do feel a little bit rushed. But I know that we must end this particular series because we are starting in Lent on Wednesday. And we will, of course, on Sundays be looking at the themes of Lent. Last week we concluded the section called The Great Thanksgiving and we ended with The Great Amen. So next we move into the Lord's Prayer. This prayer was taught by Jesus in Matthew and in Luke, and perhaps the most striking aspect of the Lord's Prayer is how it leads us to address God as Father. And unlike our natural fathers, our Heavenly Father is perfect in His love, almighty in His care, makes no errors in judgment, And he disciplines us only for our good. Now, if you are relatively new to Anglicanism, or you might even be new this morning, I encourage you to open up your service booklets, and you might want to turn to this particular page in the Mass. And because I don't have one open, I don't know what page uh, the Lord's Prayer. Thank you. Page 13. So you can turn there and kind of follow with me as I um, conclude uh, and go through the, the remainder of the Mass. So we're on page 13 at the Lord's Prayer. Now, the ancient Jews certainly viewed God as the father of the people of Israel. But it was not at all common for an individual to address God as father. So nevertheless, this is precisely what Jesus calls us to do. So Jesus' native tongue was Aramaic, and the word Abba for father was an intimate, affectionate term used for daddy. So this underscores the intimate relationship that we now have with God because of Jesus' finished work of salvation. And through our union and intimacy in Jesus Christ, God has truly become our Father and we have become His sons and daughters. So the depth of this relationship that we sinful creatures have with God is expressed in the opening line of this prayer. The one who is in heaven, the almighty, eternal creator God, is our intimate, personal, daddy, father. The word our in this prayer also is significant. It points to the deep unity that we have together by virtue of our commonly heavenly father. So all who are united in Jesus Christ are truly brothers and sisters in and through him. So this prayer has traditionally been divided into seven petitions with the first three focused on God, thy name, thy kingdom, and thy will, and the last four focused on our needs of give us, forgive us, lead us, and to deliver us. And of course it ends with the doxology. I'd like to talk about a few of these lines. I won't have a lot of time to elaborate. But the first one is, hallowed be thy name. So in the Bible, a person's name is his reputation. It is how the person is regarded, how they are remembered. Now, God's name in the Bible was associated with God himself, his character, who he is, and what he does. So this petition prays that God's name is hallowed, holy, other than, set apart, and different. And second, thy kingdom come. We spend a lot of time here at All Saints talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. We think it's essential to what the gospel is, and and it's essential to actually what we're praying here in the Lord's Prayer. But the prophets foretold how God would restore the kingdom of Israel and that God himself would 
reign over all the nations. We see this in Isaiah and Zechariah. This petition prays that God's reign will be accepted throughout the world in all people's hearts and lives and families and workplaces, churches, cities, countries, beginning with our own. Third, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, his life, teachings, and miracles, and casting out demons, he ushered in this kingdom, calling people to repent and to believe in the gospel, announcing that the kingdom is at hand. In other words, it is within arm's reach. It is around you. And that one day he would return and bring this kingdom to completion and fullness. So we're living in the in-between times, the now, but not yet, of the kingdom of God. So the difference between, between D-Day and V-Day might be of help to us here. And Jesus taught us to pray that His kingdom would come more to earth like it is already in heaven. So we now pray that all of earth may worship God and obey His will. His rule and reign would come now like it is already in heaven. Now we're going to come back and just elaborate a little bit more about that in just a moment. Fourth, give us this day our daily bread. Now bread in the Bible is the most basic kind of food and was viewed as necessary to sustain life. And the mention of bread did not bring to mind simply food or nourishment. It often was a symbol for support for life in general. So the mention of daily bread in this petition refers to our daily needs. It recalls the daily manna given to sustain the people of God, Israel, in the desert. So just as God gave each person exactly the amount of heavenly bread they needed for each day, so He continues to provide for our needs each and every day. Now this petition also has Eucharistic overtones as the prayer for daily bread points to the bread of life that we are about to receive in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Not only that, not only can this be interpreted and understood as day-by-day bread, but the Greek construction can also be understood as tomorrow's bread today. Now we go back to what, some of what we talked about the kingdom and just uh, a little bit ago. Referring to the bread of the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus has already been teaching about, which is at hand and available and ready for the people, already, but still not yet, and that will come and bring the fullness of the kingdom when He comes back again. Lord, we are, we're praying in this prayer, Lord, bring more of that future kingdom, the bread of tomorrow, bring more of that today in our lives. Now, this is profound. It's profoundly powerful. And when you think about it and reflect on this, um, I, I hope it, it, you, you never remain the same. And what we're praying, yes, we're praying, praying for God's sustaining bread for today, exactly what we need for today. And we're also praying for more of the bread like it's going to be one day, more of that today. It's powerful. Fifth, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So before receiving Holy Communion, as we ask God to forgive our sins, to purify us so that we might be holy temples of Jesus, who already does and will soon dwell within us in this sacrament. So the sin that we have in our hearts and we even hold toward other people 
acts like a barrier or a dam that hinders the water from flowing. It obstructs and impedes the intimacy and relationship that we have with Jesus. That must be dealt with during confession and even in the Lord's Prayer before we approach the altar to receive Holy Communion. We are to confess and repent, to forgive others who have sinned against us, to be reconciled with God, and to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sixth, lead us not into temptation. So this is not so much to avoid the trials in life, as much as to request that God will not allow us to enter or give into temptation. It is more like asking God to strengthen us to overcome temptations that we face. It is like saying, trials make me stronger, but Lord, please remove me from the temptation in those difficult and trying times. But when I am in those moments, may I rely on your strength and power to overcome. May we remember the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It's something that I would encourage all of us to memorize. And God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation... He will provide the way of an escape. Now, I know sometimes uh, we scratch our heads and we wonder if God really knows what he's talking about. As we're in that moment of great temptation, it is sometimes difficult to rely on Christ to give us all that we need. But when we do, he provides all that we need. We just don't often rely on him as much in those times. Seventh, deliver us from evil. So this, this can also mean deliver us from the evil one. So this is Satan the fallen angels who oppose God's will and lead others to join him in his rebellion. So in this concluding petition, therefore, we are asking that the Father deliver us from Satan, from all of his lies, all of his works, all of his entrapments, the prison, the captivity, the bondage. Now, I know that's something that many of us battle with. Uh, Most of us battle with this on on a daily basis. The lies of the enemy. We're always trying to replace the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. The truth of what God says. So we're to remember the scripture, scriptures that say, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That's what 1 John 4 uh, verse 4 says. First uh, Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters will pause after deliver us from evil and then the celebrant will say, which I think is a very powerful prayer, Deliver us, Lord, we pray. From every evil, graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may always be free from sin and safe from all distress as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. I think it's a very powerful prayer that recaps and elaborates on the last part of the Lord's Prayer. And then they proceed with the doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, next in the Mass comes the fraction. Christ's body was broken for us, as 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7-8 through 8 says. And so we say, is sacrificed, not because He is re-sacrificed again. We do not believe in uh, re-sacrificing of Jesus at communion. And we've already discussed that. However, we do participate now 
in His once-for-all sacrifice that continues to sanctify us as His children. And Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that. So when God rescued the people of Israel from their slavery under Pharaoh, God gave instructions that each family should choose a spotless lamb to be prepared for a family meal. And some of the blood of the lamb was to be placed on the threshold over the entrance of their homes. And when the angel of death passed through the Egyptians, God's people, consecrated by the blood of the Passover lamb, were saved. They were passed over. So in that night, God triumphed over Pharaoh, and Pharaoh relented and let the people go, or at least at this point. And they were prepared and strengthened for the journey by feeding on the lamb and by the unleavened bread that they had been instructed to bake. So it was good for the journey and the journey of deliverance, the Exodus meal. So even as they set out, Pharaoh pursued them with the intent of wiping them off the face of the earth. And while with Pharaoh on one side and the Red Sea on the other, God made a way and parted the waters that the people might escape death and take up a new life as God's people. So from the mountain, God led them on with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day through the desert and through many trials and temptations. He established them in the promised land as His people so that they can serve His purposes. And now this whole series of events, the deliverance from Pharaoh through the night of death and through the Red Sea, the giving of the law, the leading into the promised land, this whole thing is the Exodus. It's the Exodus meal. It's the Passover. You see the meaning and the power of that story and the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, that we partake, the story that we repeat, that we remember, that we unforget like we talked about last week. And Jesus is the new Moses, and he has defeated the forces that stood behind all the pharaohs and all the emperors of death that have ever been and ever shall be. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We have been washed in the blood and set apart as his people. And Jesus, as the Passover, stands between us and the principalities and the powers of sin and evil and darkness and death. He has, by his once-for-all sacrifice of love on the cross, made a way out and given us a new life. He has given us his Holy Spirit to live in us so that we can live out his life. He promises to lead us at last through the many trials and temptations to the promised land and His kingdom forever. And by the way, that forever kingdom starts even now. And that kingdom could be experienced today. It's not just something that we experience whenever we die and we leave this earth. So after the first exodus, the people of Israel were instructed to keep an annual Passover feast. And a lamb would be prepared in the same way on the night in which they were delivered. And by virtue of a meal in conjunction with the unforgetting, the remembering, the retelling of the story of their redemption. We talked about that last week. The saving event of the first exodus was made a present reality that they could experience the day that they remembered. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us once and for all upon the cross. And through the meal which He gave us on the night in which He was betrayed, in conjunction with the remembering, the retelling, the unforgetting of what all that God has done for us, in, with, and through His Son, 
the Passover which Jesus accomplished in His death and resurrection are made present for us in such a way that it becomes a living reality for us today. Thus we respond. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The feast of our salvation. So after the bread is broken, before the anthem is said or sung, there is or should be a brief moment of silence. Remembering all that Jesus did and all that it means for us. Without the sacrifice of love, the feast of reconciliation is not possible. So we remember. Next comes the prayer of humble access. What righteousness do we have on our own? Apart from Christ, we have none. We know we are sinful and that we can do no good apart from the grace of God He has freely offered in His Son, Jesus Christ. We know that we can do nothing good in ourselves, so we bend the knee of our heart and even we bend the knee of our body as we come to this altar. Like the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, who came to the Lord asking for healing for her daughter and pleaded before Jesus, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that have fallen from their master's table. But we are not given crumbs. We are given a full meal. And not just any meal. We come for the foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation. Here at the Lord's table the altar, we receive our Lord truly and fully present in the bread and wine. We partake in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells the Jews, I am the bread of life. Jesus gives himself to us to draw us to him that we may be transformed into his likeness, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. When we are in the presence of Jesus Christ, He desires to transform and transfigure us, just like what this feast day is all about. It is that participation in the life of Jesus that we prepare for. We prepare to receive His body and blood for the healing of our bodies and souls and for the healing of the world. Now comes the Agnus Day. We make John the Baptist's words in John chapter 1, 29, our prayer because we know that communion is about Jesus' once and for all sacrifice. Now, do you know how many times I've said once and for all in this sermon? And I've done it intentionally. Once and for all sacrifice. Not anything that we could have done of ourselves. We needed a perfect sacrifice for our sins and the Son of God became that for us. Once we have received mercy, peace, is the result. Because peace with God and humanity is one of our greatest needs. Next comes the presentation, the gifts of God that are for the people of God. So this is the invitation for the faithful to come to receive Holy Communion. Jesus Christ promises us that this is His body and blood. We believe it and believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in this holy sacrament. We don't define how it happens, but we believe, respect, honor, and receive with faith that Christ is ever present to meet us in this bread and this wine. At the time of the English Reformation, the argument between the Church of England and the Church of Rome was not about whether Christ was present in a unique way to be faithful in this sacrament. 
but it was the question of how. The concern of the Reformers was that the popular understanding of the means of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist lent itself to a superstitious and magical view of the sacrament, such that there was a danger that the people would become more focused on the magic and the change of the elements and the ceremony. As Anglicans, we believe in the real presence of Jesus, but we focus on the purpose of the Eucharist, that we might feed on Christ and to be reconciled to God and to to each other and to be strengthened with food for living the Christian life. The theological tradition that stands behind the prayer book uses the words sacramental, spiritual, and real interchangeably. So I hope that you understood all that was going on here. We believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ. The only difference that we had with Rome back in the Reformation was about how that becomes the case. And we don't really know, and so we leave it a mystery. We believe it happens. I I ended last week's teaching by saying, if all of this is true, everything that we've been preaching on in the Mass, everything that we say about the meaning and the power of the liturgy and even in the sacrament of Holy Communion, then why aren't all sacramental and liturgical churches truly being transformed in the image of Jesus Christ and growing numerically and spiritually and reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ? Certainly the opposite wouldn't be true like we are seeing in many parts of the church today with significant decline in numbers and apparent spiritual absence. As Anglicans, we don't believe in magic, nor anything superstitious, nor an automatic giving of the real presence of Jesus Christ. Now let me explain what I mean by that. We believe the real presence of Jesus Christ will be given when hearts are hungry, and seeking, and repentant, and reconciled to others, and hearts that are coming with expectation to meet with God. If we do not come with hearts seeking and sins confessed and turned away from and hungry and expecting and reconciled to others, we might just be getting a sip of wine and a piece of bread. So much more, I think, could be said about this, but I think that you get the point. Now, God can be God, and God does exactly what God wants to do. Remember Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus, he wasn't seeking after God when he was on the road to to persecute Christians. God met him unexpectedly. But if we look throughout the pages of scriptures, we look at the vast majority of cases. As the Bible teaches, it's hearts that are hungry and seeking, expectant, repentant. Those will encounter God. Those are the things that we press into as Anglicans. So the way in which we lay hold of this reality is by faith, by trusting and leaning on Him. There is a saying attributed to Queen Elizabeth I that does sum this classical Anglican approach to the sacrament. It is this, quote, He was the Word that spake it, and what the Word did make it, I do believe in and take it. (laughs) I think that sums it up pretty good. Now, I don't know if actually... Uh, Queen Elizabeth I actually said that, but it's attributed to her. But nonetheless, I think it's pretty good. Let me read it. I have to read it again. He was the word that spake it, and what the word did make it, I do believe in and take it. Remember, we do not take Holy Communion. We receive it. That is why we place our hands open and we kneel as we are able, and we are in a receiving and a humble posture. 
Now, I pro- provide a lot of grace. I don't say anything. I don't correct people when they come forward. And I don't mean to embarrass anyone, so please don't think I'm talking about anyone here. But I would encourage you to think about the way that you receive Holy Communion, that you don't reach out your hands and receive it like this, but that you change your posture to take it like this. Because there is a difference between taking and receiving, so just something that I encourage you to think about. So next is the prayer of thanksgiving. We give him thanks for feeding us. And we now position ourselves to be sent out into the world to do the works that he has given us to do, to love and serve the world into relationship with Jesus Christ. Next comes the, bless, the blessing and the dismissal. Now, Father Justin Reed Smith talked about this on Mission Sunday a couple weeks ago. And uniting ourselves to the Lord, we become more and more like Him so that we show the world not ourselves, but Jesus Christ living in us. And then we go out there living the life of grace received in this sacrament of love in order that the peace of God may rule in our hearts and rule in the world. Not only do we ask the Holy Spirit to come upon the bread and the wine to make it the body and the blood of Christ, and we ask the Holy Spirit to come upon us, His his people, His bride, to fill us with His Holy Spirit, to embolden us for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to make us worthy to be able to receive this holy sacrament. But one thing I want you to think about, kind of what I already modeled down here with the young people, as a priest during the Mass, as we've talked about before, the priest is an icon of Christ. But I want to remind you that you are the priesthood of all believers. And that when we leave this place and we're living our life everywhere we go and everything that we do, think for a moment when you're sitting at a coffee shop and you're waiting for a meeting. Ask the Holy Spirit, a moment of the epiclesis, Holy Spirit, come upon me right now. Give me an awareness of what is happening in this meeting. May I be aware of the needs of the person that I'm talking to. Empower me with the words that you want me to say. Help me to be able to be a blessing to the person I meet with. And by the way, I don't care if it's work-related or if it's baseball-related. It doesn't matter. But Jesus will give us what we need in that moment. Think about the way that, that our mind changes from what we're actually meeting there to do. We're there to accomplish everything we're supposed to do. But through the mind and with, through the eyes, I, say, I should say, of Jesus Christ. Anywhere we go, shopping, whether we're standing in a line, whether we're going out to eat, whether at the baseball game, Holy Spirit, give me an awareness. Give me the gifts you need me to have in this moment. Release the gifts. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me an awareness of what's going on around me. Help me to be sensitive to the people that are actually broken and crying out for help that need a word of encouragement. That's practical epiclesis. Asking the Holy Spirit to come upon you as the people of God and me as we live life every day, 24-7. Next comes the post-processional. Now, we do not recess out of the church. Now, I realize that some churches still use that language, and that's okay, but we don't use that language, and we are intentional, and let me explain the difference. Some might say it's actually a splitting of hairs, but I think it's actually more than that. The idea of the procession is simple. We are gathering for worship. And we talked about this, by the way, in the very beginning of this series. So we are gathering for worship from outside, from our daily lives and community. And we are approaching God through Christ, and therefore the cross goes before us. And as we leave at the end of the service, we are being sent 
back out into the world with the cross leading the way. We are not recessing from what is important. We are post-processing into the world to continue the important work as worship continues to be a way of life. Now you think about that. If you've never thought about that before, it might be the first you've ever heard that. Think about the power of that. We're not leaving what's most important. We're actually post-processing and bringing what's important out into the world. Very powerful. Processions are not simply pageantry for the sake of pageantry. And by the way, there is nothing wrong with pageantry unless it is empty and it's done for its own sake. Processions are pageantry for a reason. And the reason is powerful. Remember that the Book of Common Prayer is Holy Scripture that is arranged for worship. So much has been said and so much more can be said. May the explanation of worship and liturgy and the sacraments truly change the way we worship. And may the one we worship truly transform our lives for His kingdom purposes and mission. And God's people said.